Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University, specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Diana. Hey, Debbie. Good to see you again today. It's good to see you, too. Um, We have a great episode ahead, an interview that I did with an expert in childhood and adolescent anxiety. Um, And I'm really excited to talk to you a little bit about it before we play the interview. Um, Before we do that, real quick, though, I want to hear you have a workshop coming up, and I want our listeners to just hear a little reminder of what you have ahead. Yeah, September 9th from 1 to 4 at Yoga Soup in Santa Barbara, I'm going to be doing a workshop on developing a compassionate mind. And you can learn more about it on my website, drdianahill.com or at yogasoup.com. It's for both professionals and the general public. So I hope to see some listeners there. Great. It sounds fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that with our listeners. Um So yeah, so I'm excited about this interview. I've interviewed someone, Dr. Veronica Raji, who is really a a person who specializes in childhood and adolescent anxiety treatment using exposure therapy. And so we talked a lot about childhood anxiety. We talked about how to do exposure therapy and some really cool ideas. And we also talked about the role of parents and how they interact with their children around anxiety, things that parents might do that might contribute to to childhood anxiety. And so before we start the interview, we thought we might just quickly talk a little bit about how we think about that, both as clinicians and as parents ourselves. Absolutely. I work a lot with anxiety in my practice, not with children, but certainly with adolescents and then also with parents that have their own anxiety and then are seeing it manifested in their own children. And I think that parents play such a such an important role in sort of this developmental task of how do we, like at the age of two, you're worried they're just not going to like survive the day without you know, harming themselves, mm-hmm. falling off a table, eating something dangerous to, to being, you know, healthy adults that are resilient and open to taking risks and flexible and ability to be curious. And I think part of what happens with anxiety is that 
as parents, we're so worried about our children's emotions, and it's difficult for us to even tolerate our children being uncomfortable, that we tend to maybe sometimes overprotect and uh, prevent them from taking the risks uh, that are needed uh, in order to develop more strength and bravery. Yeah, and I, I think we talk about that a little in the episode. And I think as a parent myself, I I understand that because it's really terrifying sometimes to watch your kids go out into the world and take risks. Even if you know it's good for them, it brings up your own fears. And there's just something that's so challenging about that. Absolutely. I was just telling you, we were out surfing today and my son was taking, my eight-year-old was taking some really, it was a big surf day and some massive waves. And I just noticed myself, I had to really hold back and let and, tr- and trust him. He was out there with a the coach and just trust him to, to take the risk and that he was in a supportive environment. But it's, it's so easy as a parent to fall into the pattern of like, oh no, don't do that, honey. That's too high. Or don't climb that tree or don't, you know, don't touch that. And as opposed to giving them a little bit of room to, to try things out. And that's important for a flexible brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little? I know you you had um, uh, some ideas from Dan Siegel's work, who, yeah. spoiler alert, is going to come on the podcast soon. Yes, he's coming on in the next episode. So we're super excited to share him and his new book with you all. Uh, another book that he'd written, if you are a parent, he's done a lot of um, books for parents, but one that I really loved is The Yes Brain. And in that book, he talks about these sort of two different states of mind, yes brain versus no brain. And the yes brain he associates with children that are more resilient, open-minded, curious, imaginative, compassionate, and have a lot of insight. And how we as parents can help them, the yes brain actually is a more integrated brain as well, where the prefrontal cortex is more developed. And when we say yes to our child, when we allow them to explore the world, that also cultivates a sense, uh, cultivates their their yes brain, as opposed to a no brain, which is uh, much much more uh, fearful, reactive, worry-based, um, worried about making mistakes. And we see that a lot with children that are um, really pressured to follow certain rules and be su- successful as defined by achievement-oriented success, as opposed to process-based successes. And I think some of the strategies in developing a yes brain are, are also strategies that you've talked about before in terms of emotion regulation in children, how to help children soothe their body get to a place where they're out of the threat system and into a more of a soothing, you know, soothed, soothed brain space so that then they can slow down and make, you know, higher, higher order decision making, um, listening to their own intuition and also be able to problem solve. Well, that's really interesting. And I love that idea. And I think it maps on really nicely with the episode that we have for you today, because she talks a lot about how part of what you do when you're working with anxiety and clinical practices just help people experience some doses of those types of emotions so that they they aren't as alarming and they can continue to engage in the things that they want to be doing. So I hope that um, this in, this interview is helpful and useful both to parents and also clinicians who treat anxiety disorders. I can't wait to listen. 
Dr. Veronica Raji is a licensed clinical psychologist who has specialized in treating children and adolescents for the past 10 years in private practice, school, hospital, and outpatient medical settings, including New York University Child Study Center, Children's National Medical Center, and the University of Maryland College Park. She presents, consults, and trains mental health professional professionals in utilizing cognitive behavioral therapy and has published in numerous scholarly journals on evidence-based treatment approaches for mental health disorders in youth. She has developed CBT tools for kids, an iPhone app to help children and adolescents monitor their thoughts and feelings and use CBT skills. And she has recently published a book called Exposure Therapy for Treating Anxiety in Children and Adolescents, along with co-authors Jessica Sampson, Julia Fint. Felton, Heather Lafredo, and Lisa Berghorst. And today we're going to be talking to her about that book and about working with child and adolescent anxieties. Welcome, Dr. Raji. Thank you for having me, Debbie. Well, we're happy that you're here. Um, I have to just, before we dive into the questions, I just have to say I read your book and I work only really with adults in my clinical practice. I don't do child work, but even though that's the case, I'm really planning to keep your book handy on my bookshelf. Um, First of all, because I'm a parent and I think there's some really helpful stuff in terms of how to interact with my own children about you know, fear and anxiety. Um, and also, even though I only work with adults, I think there's so many helpful suggestions for how to do exposure work um, that I think some of it could actually be tailored for adult work as well. So I think sometimes, you know, we just need some ideas and there are some really helpful suggestions and steps you can take. So I plan to actually use the, the book, even though I don't treat children. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. That's good to hear. But no, absolutely. I mean, I think there's commonalities across human development as to what we fear and what is hard for us. And so ab absolutely, I think I do do a little bit of work with adults on exposure as well. And some of those exposures in the books, I, I do definitely um, use with adults as well. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, and sometimes it's just, you need some some ideas and the creative ones in this book I find really helpful. So um, we're going to talk a little bit later in the interview about some of those ideas. And so you can give some people a sense of some of the things you might do in exposure therapy. Um, but before we get there, let's kind of back up a little bit. And just to start, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you became interested in working with children and adolescents with anxiety disorders. So that's a good question. Um, probably many different reasons. Um, there were certain points in my um, training that I developed a little more interest along the way. Um, in graduate school, I actually worked a lot with kids with ADHD and did a lot of work training and supporting parents to uh, be effective in managing difficult behavior. So I was actually on a bit of a different track. And then sort of later in my graduate training, I was on internship and I had a um, really great supervisor. Her name's Candice Alfano, and she's now a professor um, in Houston. Um, and she helped me with a few cases um, that of um, youth that were experiencing a good bit of anxiety and gave me a few creative exposure ideas. And I remember thinking, well, wow, that's so... Um, that's so, you know, sort of interesting and unique, right? We learn a lot of times that basic talk therapy and working on 
you know, cognitions and, and feelings and, uh, but, but to go out and actually do um, an activity that's going to build confidence. So I'll give you one example before I move on, but she um, had suggested um, kind of getting it, some clown hair, some rainbow colored clown hair for an adolescent with social anxiety I was working with. And I had been building up, doing a number of exposures to help her face her fear of embarrassment and social attention. Um, and I remember when my supervisor suggested the clown hair, I initially thought, oh no, that's you know, <laughs> too much. Um, maybe that's mean. Maybe that's, you know, and I, I remember feeling that hesitancy as to is this um, is this the right choice as a clinician? Um, and it was a really helpful um, eye-opening experience for me because, of course, I, you know, I still worked with that adolescent in a warm, empathic manner as I encouraged her um, to engage in this exposure task. And I also modeled the exposure task myself by wearing the clown hair um, throughout. It was actually a hospital outpatient setting. So. Um, and what I found was as much as there was, you know, the anxiety and the initial fear to, to walk around in public in something that, you know, might make people look, might make people curious, um, could get a snicker, um, the processing of that um, during the exposure and after was really helpful to the adolescent. And she was able to realize a few things. Um, you know, one that, that, that this most terrible outcome didn't occur. Um, you know, nobody um, actually really surprisingly, nobody even laughed. Um, and, and if they had, you know, she would have handled it. We would have talked about how she did cope with um, whatever came up, but, um, but so, so the, the worst outcome didn't occur. Um, she was able to handle it better than she expected or she thought she would. Um, and, and she sort of built this sense of, okay, now I've done kind of the worst of it. Um, you know, I can, you know, I can handle these things. They're, you know, they're really not as bad as I thought. So, mm -hmm. so that was really, um, a helpful experience for me. Um, you know, so, and then, you know, in my um, postdoctoral training, I worked a lot with children with selective mutism, which is a very, um, you know, it can be a very uh, impairing, um, severe um, kind of uh, situation or, or difficulties that these kids have because they often will not speak at all in certain situations. And to see the change as we worked on exposure activities with them and to see how they blossomed and to be able to um, speak, generalize that speaking to so many different settings was really um, was really helpful. So, you know, and obviously as with anyone, it's, it's, um, it's fun and exciting when you see positive change. So that that's, you know, a big piece of why I like to do uh, some of this work. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's a little outside of the box than when you think of talk therapy where you sit there and talk. Um, and it sounds really interesting and then also rewarding to see people, you know, something shift so quickly in the therapy. Yeah. yeah. 
Cool. So one thing I wanted to kind of check in about that I think is important. So in the book, you make the point that with kids, um, well, just for everyone, anxiety is a really normal emotion that's adaptive in a lot of ways, and that we all have some fears and anxiety and children certainly do tend to have certain ones that come up at certain developmental stages. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about some typical fears that might show up for children. And then also, how do you distinguish between what's just sort of normal fear and anxiety um, versus fear and anxiety for kids and adolescents that might be problematic enough that it's worth checking out the possibility of treatment? Like, how do you differentiate that? Sure. Um, yeah, so so absolutely. I mean, anxiety, fear, it's normal. It's a normal human emotion that we all have sometimes. And, you know, it, in many cases, we have it for a reason, right? Evolutionarily, you know, we've developed this um, ability to feel and have these emotions because they guide us. Um, and with anxiety, they, they alert us to possible danger or threat. Uh, they allow, they kind of prime our body to respond in those situations. So, um, you know, we do see um, developmentally different ages. Um, absolutely, we see certain common fears. Um, fear of the dark is a very common one in young children. Fear of separation, um, those first, you know, maybe three to four years of life is extremely common. Um, in young elementary school age, we often see that sort of classic fear of monsters under the bed or other imaginary characters that maybe, you know, kind of came up through a dream they may have had or through a movie they watched and kids tend to, right, they have uh, more of a fantasy world, more of an imagination, and they can kind of hold on to some of those um, you know, maybe more um, fantasy type um, mm -hmm. fears, much more so than obviously um, adults would. Uh, another common one is, is kind of like natural disasters, you know, if you're thunder or lightning, right, when you're really young, um, intense noises um, or sights can kind of surprise a, a young kid and they can develop a fear around that. And then moving into adolescence, as the peer group takes more prominence, we do see that um, adolescents do tend to have more fears related to peer rejection um, or social concerns. So all of those are, are you know, t tend to be pretty common. When we know it's a problem is when it starts to interfere with daily living. So when that fear really becomes excessive and the child or adolescent is not able to engage in the activities they need to participate in during the day, um, when they're excessively avoiding things um, that are, again, you know, sort of safe and age-appropriate activities, um, but there becomes a significant amount of avoidance. Um, and if you want, I could give you some examples of some things that I've seen. Oh, that'd be uh, great. Yeah, I love, I, examples help so much. Yeah. Um, so, like, for example, kids with insect fears, I've seen it to the extent where they will refuse to go to parks, they'll refuse to walk in any grass, um, not necessarily even barefoot, but even with shoes on. Um, they'll walk at a, a large distance from shrubs or bushes. So that might be an example of, right, like, 
most kids don't love insects. Many might, you know, kind of go, ooh, if they see one. Uh, not everybody wants to touch the insect. But when the fear becomes something that is really interfering with daily living and they have to avoid grassy areas and bushes, um, then that becomes something really that you want to address. Mm-hmm. Um, Another example, a lot of times with kids that are very perfectionistic, you see difficulty making decisions. Um, and sometimes that can become extremely impairing. So I've had cases where the child, you know, they go to get ice cream, the kid loves ice cream, but they cannot choose the flavor of ice cream that they want. And it becomes so debilitating that they have a meltdown around not knowing which flavor they want um, and worried that it's not going to be kind of the right or the best flavor or really the flavor that they they most will enjoy. Um, so, so again, that's sort of a situation where it's sort of age appropriate to be able to make that decision or that choice. Um, for many, you know, young kids um, uh, past the age of maybe, you know, three or four, um, but yet it becomes very impairing and difficult for the child. Um, so, and, you know, avoidance, tantrums or meltdowns, difficulty concentrating, all of those things kind of uh, are signs that um, the situation may be interfering with daily life. Yeah, those are great examples. So like times when they're not able to do the things that they want to be doing or that they need to be doing mm-hmm. um, yep. when you might seek help. Yeah. And, and, you know, trying to get a sense of, is this developmentally appropriate? So something that, you know, for example, if, if you're in a restaurant, a child that's three years old is probably not going to order their own food. But when a parent is ordering for a child that say is, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, um, we know that that's kind of outside the developmental range of what we would expect. Okay. Um, so that's also an area where we would start to consider that this is something we would want to work on and address. Okay, great. And what are some of the um, factors, like the risk factors that might predispose a certain child to develop an anxiety disorder or anxiety that's problematic? Are there things that, that might be at play that would play a role there? Sure. Yeah. As in most mental health disorders, there's that nature-nurture combination in most cases. So um, many of these kids do have kind of a genetic vulnerability towards experiencing some anxiety or kind of a temperamental style that would put them at risk. Oftentimes, you'll see at a very young age, these kids tend to be very inhibited. You know, they're, they're the kids that are more likely to cling to their parents, to have more difficulty getting out there to explore their environment. Um, we also know that they, um, kids that do develop anxiety disorders tend to be more physiologically um, sensitive or, you know, sort of responsive or reactive to stressors. So they're more likely to experience that heart rate rising, um, maybe the shaking hands, those physical sensations that um, are associated with anxiety. Do you know, I, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I uh, did, that was my dissertation research was related to temperament and behavioral information inhibition. And someday I'd like to do a whole episode on that. We've never covered that on the podcast before, but yeah, that's a really interesting sort of predisposition. Yeah. Yeah. Great topic. Um, Yes, it is. It's a significant risk factor for parents to know and kind of understand. I mean, kids are, you know, even from infancy and toddlerhood, kids vary so much in their temperaments. Um, 
and there are there are certain temperamental styles that that do play a role in um, you know how that child will develop. Um, so yeah, so nature and then you know nurture environment um, uh, modeling of the parent is a really important one. So there's certain parenting styles that tend to um, be a risk factor for a child becoming more anxious. Um, and we, I think we're going to maybe talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Um, but just generally a parent who might engage in a lot of protective behaviors or in an effort to try to help the child might be a little overly intrusive or have a bit too much control over the situation. Um, so that can certainly play a role. And then if the parent is anxious themselves, they may in, inadvertently, unintentionally model some anxious behavior as well. So that can come up um, in addition. Yeah, and I think uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about more about that now because as a parent myself, I thought that section was really interesting just in terms of, first of all, how parents might unintentionally um, you know, interact with their children in ways that sort of you know, either cause or reinforce anxiety. Um, can you, I guess, go a little bit more into that? Like for the parents who might be listening, what what might be helpful or less helpful? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, you know, part of this is natural. I mean, as a parent, I feel this way too sometimes, right? You see your kids suffering, mm -hmm. um, maybe terribly anxious around something or not knowing what to do. And as a parent, you often feel that inner urge or desire to fix it, right? To help, to step in, to um, figure out what needs to be done. And, you know, on some level, right, you know, nurturing and support is very much the essence of a good portion of the child-parent relationship, as well it should be. Um, at the same time, what sometimes happens with, with certain parents who may feel more anxiety or more concerned that the experience of anxiety might be harmful to their child, they might step in a little bit too much. Um, so sometimes when we attempt to fix things or we jump in immediately, um, sometimes when we take over the problem-solving efforts of our child, um, or another example might be provide kind of excessive reassurance rather than allowing the child to kind of come up with some ideas, these things long-term can kind of reduce the child's feelings of self-efficacy, their belief or their perception that they are competent at handling uh, whatever does come up um, in life, um, dealing with situations that might be stressful to them. Um, so that's so kind of taking, you know, kind of taking over a little bit too much is certainly one big area. Um, the other area, the other thing that happens is um, sometimes parents, in a, again, wanting to reduce the suffering or the anxiety of their child, allow for avoidance. Um, and we call this um, parent accommodation. So that's any parent behavior that is designed to kind of reduce the child's exposure to the stressful situation. Um, and again, this isn't a stressful situation that's traumatic. This is a stressful situation that is safe and age appropriate for the child to be engaging in. For example, attending that extracurricular activity, walking in the park, um, going to school in the morning, talking to a peer. Um, so, um, I mean, I can give you an example, if you'd like, of, sure. of physical parent accommodation. Mm -hmm, um, that'd be great. So... 
for example, let's say a child is very nervous to attend um, his or her swimming lesson. Um, some things a parent might do to accommodate might be, right, uh, you know, kind of a big one would be allowed to avoid, obviously, attending or skip the lesson on particular days. Um, or sometimes parents might ask a teacher or a coach to accommodate the child by telling the teacher maybe, you know, he, he doesn't need to get in the water if he's feeling nervous, or maybe you could let him out of these activities if he's uncertain about them. Um, so again, having others accommodate the child, or actually sometimes parents might physically get into the water with the child, and that would be an example of kind of overprotection. So in all of these situations, unfortunately, the, the, the message, the underlying message that the child hears is, you know, I need you in order to be okay. Um, I need this help and support. Without that, um, I'm not going to be able to handle it. And so we want to, you know, obviously work towards more feelings of um, competency um, and a little more independence in the child. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely have done that a few times. I can think of examples where I've been a little overly reassuring or accommodating with my kids. So it's a good thing to be aware of. Um, but I have to say, there's one thing, if I might tell a quick story that I feel that I have done right as a parent that's in your book. Um, and let me be clear, I've done a lot of things that I would say are not, I'm not so proud of as a parent, <laughs> but um, you talk about just reinforcing anxiety versus reinforcing those moments where children are courageous. And I think I do that. I, a lot of times I'll be like, I know that was a scary thing to do, or you were feeling nervous about it. And I'm so proud of you that you did it. Cause I think that was really brave um, because I do think kids are courageous a lot and a lot of times it goes unnoticed. So just one little victory. <laughs> no, absolutely. I completely agree. Kids need to know, I mean, praise is so important. Those efforts are reinforced and noticed and that, um, and that they make the connection that facing that fear actually made them stronger because I think it's so easy to um, get stuck in thinking the opposite that, you know, I, I avoided and that reduced my discomfort. So that's why I'm okay. Um, and so to continue that short term, those short term attempts to alleviate the discomfort and not really recognize that overall the bigger picture is, you know, that that's kind of keeping the fear alive. That's kind of building it. So yeah. for kids to understand that when they face that fear, they're stronger, they're more powerful in a way. I think that's really important. Yeah. Cool. And before we move out of this topic, do you have any sort of other advice for parents or anything you feel that you've done right as a, as a parent yourself? Um, so, yeah, so I, you know, with my daughter, I've had ups and downs over the years. Um, I actually had a situation last week. This comes up periodically at bedtime. She's almost eight years old and she over the years has tried to push to try to get me to sleep with her. And I've, I've learned that it doesn't, doesn't work. Occasionally in years past, I would, you know, say she had a given fear that particular night, sometimes have the willingness to um, allow her to fall asleep with me lying next to her. And I found that when I do that, then the subsequent night is harder 
not easier. Um, and that she develops um, actually even more of a need for me to be with her rather than feeling more independence and competency. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so this past week she had uh, a nightmare on a previous night and then we're going to, we're, we're headed to bed and she kind of remembered this image she had in her head of the nightmare the night before. And so what I've done over the years is I generally, I of course validate, I always recommend validating. You never want to uh, tell a child they shouldn't be afraid of that or that doesn't make sense. Um, so I always tell her, I, you know, I hear you. I summarize what she's saying. You know, you're telling me you're, you know, you're noticing uh, this image and it feels uncomfortable and I, I get that. Um, but then I maintain my boundaries. I think that's so important. I try really hard not to give into any of the demands or get kind of emotionally pulled up in her disruption. Um, which might be her attempts to negotiate or demand, or I really, really need you because. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so, but what I do is try to figure out, is there a way I need to structure this in order to make it easier for her to engage in the behavior that I'm looking for? Um, so with bedtime, a lot of times, if, if she is having an issue, I will offer a check-in. Um, so, you know, I maintain my boundaries. You know what? I'm not going to lie down with you because, you know, we've talked about it. And I know that that, that kind of makes the fear stronger. It makes you think you need me here. And I know how powerful you are. And that if we face that fear, you're going to feel stronger. So, you know what? I'm not going to lie down with you, but I'm going to give you a hug. I'm going to go brush my teeth. And in five minutes, I'm going to come back and check. Um, and that actually helps her a lot. She's willing to um, take that cue and, and try to approach her fear when it's kind of broken down into small chunks like that. Um, and then luckily she, after a couple check-ins, usually she falls asleep. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I, I try to do that, but you know, it's always a learning process because sometimes new things come up. That particular one, I think I've managed better over the years, having a lot of experience of it coming up on and off, but it's always hard and it's hard when something new comes up. Absolutely. Um, That's yeah. one of the challenges of parenting, right? Is trying to navigate all of those situations that arise, yeah. not expecting them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I would definitely say that would be, I mean, some of my suggestions would absolutely be to, you know, to be empathic, but but, but brief about it, to not get pulled into any negotiation with the child and just kind of take a deep breath, try to slow yourself down and think about what boundaries do I feel like are appropriate in this situation um, and see if you can maintain those um, while scaffolding or structuring in a way that might be helpful to the child. That's great advice. Yes, thank you. And now if we kind of move a bit more into the clinical work in your practice, um, let's start with some of the typical or you, you've mentioned a couple already, but some of the anxiety disorder, disorders that you typically see in your practice, what, what kinds of types of anxiety tend to show up? Sure. Um, I see a wide variety. Um, it, there is, let's see, I see many kids with panic disorder. Um, so, so basically kids that are very hyper vigilant to their own physical sensations and body cues and often have this sense that 
um, those subtle changes in physical sensations may be harmful or may lead to bad outcomes um, so that um, they tend to, you know, very quickly um, get this rush of physical sensations that we call panic. Um, so I see many kids with that often. Panic can be associated with, um, with school refusal. That comes up often, as well as actually something which I think is more common than most people realize, which is sort of fear of, um, fear of vomiting, I actually see quite a bit. Hmm. Um, yeah, and it's, it's often very tied in with panic, um, where the child has had a previous um, negative experience, having maybe been sick and vomited and kind of has developed this memory that they feel is traumatic in a way, um, has sort of magnified the idea of vomiting now um, as incredibly aversive and something that they could not handle. And then unfortunately, it leads to, similar to panic, some hypervigilance around noticing changes in the stomach and monitoring how their stomach feels and if they feel nauseous, and then can lead to a host of other um, avoidance related issues like uh, limited food intake, only being willing to eat certain things, um, uh, limited exercise, because they're worried that if they're, you know, they get their blood pumping and they're jumping up and down, that could lead to vomiting. Um, so that's actually, yeah, more common than you would think and often associated with the panic piece. Um, also see a lot of, with the young kids, a lot of separation anxiety. Um, you know, some, some very focused on school, others, um, just more broadly, any separation from the parent, um, social anxiety and social concerns, um, pretty big in adolescence. And then with the younger ones, see some of that as well as, um, the selective mutism where they're specifically struggling to let their voice out in certain settings, which is, um, most often school related. Um, OCD, so, um, you know, obsessive or intrusive thoughts, and then ritualistic behavior to try to neutralize um, the thought. Um, so whether that's I need to wash my hands 10 times in order to get the germs off, or I'm not going to walk on sidewalk cracks, because that, you know, kind of feels like something bad will happen if I do that. Um, those types of behaviors I do see pretty often. Um, and maybe a couple other areas I would say, you know, specific kind of phobias, whether that's, you know, with young kids, sometimes uh, getting a shot, needles is, is fairly common. Um, I work through dog fears, um, fears of natural disasters with kids. Um, and then the last one comes up a lot. I see this a lot. I mean, Washington, D.C. kind of metro area, I think, um, as a not to not to stereotype or generalize too much, but I think does tend to be a kind of more high achieving um, area where kids do um, tend to be involved a lot in advanced coursework and a lot ton of extracurricular activities, sometimes overloaded with these things, experiencing a lot of pressure to kind of compete with other kids in their school. Um, so I see a lot of perfectionism where there's kind of this sense to try to kind of over control things, um, rigidity around routines, um, and really difficulty tolerating any uncertainty. Um, when anything is not, you know, there's not that clear path. So the child knows, yep, I'm going to get, I'm going to get an A and that's, that's fairly certain. As soon as things feel more ambiguous, um, these, 
the, these, this kind of set of kids often has, um, have a lot of difficulty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get sort of anxious around that. Yeah. Interesting. So pretty big array of, of, um, presentations that, that show up in your, in your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. We see, I mean, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I mean, I think anxiety, you know, like we said, there may be common initially sort of temperamental factors, but then um, it's interesting how diverse it can be and become over time. Um, luckily, most of those things are very treatable. So that's the good news. <laughs> but well, why don't we move into treatment? Um, and I, because I feel like we could talk about any one of those for so long, and I wish we could. <laughs> really interesting. Um, but maybe in case any of our listeners aren't really familiar with exposure therapy or what that means, could you talk a little bit about what that is and why it's so effective and so import, important in the treatment of anxiety? Sure. Yeah. So exposure therapy um, is an evidence-based treatment protocol that really makes sure to incorporate, um, I mean, it's a very, very simple idea, practice um, approaching the feared stimuli. So, um, and, and there's, you know, within that, there are, there are, helpful ways to go about that process. Um, but in essence, that what, that's what it is. It's, it's making sure that not only do we challenge the negative fearful thoughts, not only do we teach relaxation skills and ways to cope, but we help sort of slow down the process of facing the fear so that they're doing it with you as the coach and also transferring to, you know, the help the parent learn how to become an effective exposure coach to guide the child towards building confidence to be in those situations. Um, because the more, you know, they, they say often the behavior change, um, comes before the cognitive change. And, um, and I do notice that a lot that once the child has experienced mastery of certain exposures, that those negative cognitions are are much more movable and flexible. They're because they're realizing they they have firsthand information that that most terrible outcome did not occur, and they have firsthand information that they handled it, even if they were nervous, even if their heart rate was up, they did it. So, um, so yeah, so exposure. Um, Typically, contemporary, contemporary exposure therapy tends to involve a series of graduated and increasingly challenging steps. Uh, historically, there were other um, methods, um, some of which is sort of flooding where you, you kind of put the, the person into the most serious <laughs> situation imaginable, which we don't recommend and most people really recommend a more gradual approach these days. Um, so it's, you know, figuring out a way to break things down into steps um, and, and then kind of working through those steps. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's so important because the avoidance is so reinforcing sometimes in the short term, but then, um, you know, it's just not effective. And so as people get more and more exposure to the things that they're, you know, they kind of face their fears and they, they have the fear show up. So what do you, how do you work with the fear? So when you're doing these therapies and, you know, the fear is really high, you know, as they're starting to to face some of these feared stimuli, how do you work with the fear that shows up in the room? 
mm-hmm. or out of the room as the case may be? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so it, it really depends on the individual case because we don't want to have too much dialogue during the actual exposure because it can um, very much distract the client from being able to fully attend to what they need to attend to in order to habituate or um, kind of the habituation is basically the fear response reduces over time, right? The longer we face something, eventually it's just not going to feel like such a big deal. Um, so I'm careful with my dialogue. I do use it when necessary to help the child kind of keep going. Um, But often I use the dialogue more in kind of the preparation prior to the exposure. We might review some coping thoughts specific to that situation. Um, but, um, But with exposure, if they're coming in for a session, once we've decided on a task, I often engage in it pretty quickly because obviously anticipatory anxiety can build the longer you're considering and waiting to start something. Um, And I try to have, you know, sort of um, try to use a kind of a calm, confident voice and demeanor. Um, We smile, we um, try to make it fun. And I do, if I find that a child is struggling, I will find a way to break it down into another step so that it does not feel overwhelming. So with um, exposure, we're trying to aim for a moderate level of anxiety. Um, If we feel, right, anxiety is over the top, we are going to try to adjust um, the actual task to make it more manageable. Yeah. Um, So I'm always taking fear ratings. That's something that I do, whether, you know, depending on the age of the kid, it may be a one to six or a one to 10 scale. Uh, But I will check in with them prior to the exposure, ask them what number they're at during the exposure. I may check in a couple times um, and then after. So we also have some data to see that the fear actually reduced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You can see it change over time. Yeah. And it seems like it's that, that key piece more than anything you do necessarily, the key piece is they just have to experience the anxiety and kind of let it be there and get exposure to the anxiety really. And it seems like what you're trying to do is aim for just the right amount so that they can, you know, the fear will sort of be there, but reduce, but not be so overwhelming that they, you know, like run out the door or, or get flooded. So that's a, there's a real skill to that, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. I am always sort of checking in and looking for clues in the environment or in that session to know exactly at kind of what level or how much, you know, how much challenge the child is ready for. Because I, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's not that the, you know, in some cases we see the anxiety completely go away. Um, and the child completely habituates, but in many many cases, that's not the case. We're teaching them that they can tolerate and in a way accept, I mean, maybe it has some similarity to ACT, which I don't know as um, very well, so I'd be curious about that, but, but just this idea, this ability to accept the anxiety that comes up in the moment without having to try to kind of suppress it or fix it or, or reduce it and realizing that you can actually handle that emotion as it occurs. So through that support of the therapist who the child has built rapport with and a connection with and trusts, the idea is they allow that to that willingness to experience some emotional, um, some, some emotional experience that they've previously been really pushing away and avoiding 
and assuming that that they can't you know can't handle right it gives them other other type of evidence from their experience mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, to me, I think what's so interesting about it and what I really want to hear about is like, what are some of the things you do? I think when, because I think having that exposure element is so important when you're working with anxiety. And I've sometimes tried to incorporate some, I do tend to take a bit more of an act, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy stance um, versus CBT. Um, But I think there's a lot of overlap there in terms of just helping people, you know, get some exposure and, and you know, face their fears. So some, but sometimes I'm not really sure what to actually do. And your book has some really good examples, but I was hoping you could give us, I mean, some of them are really creative and like innovative. Could you give our listeners some examples of some of the things that you've done? Um, Cause I think it takes a certain like creativity to think of these things. Sure. I'd be happy to. And, and, you know, some of these we, um, me and the other book authors came up with, and many of them are in a variety of resources um, that, you know, so, so I want to make sure everyone knows, you know, I haven't come up with all of these myself. um, But, you know, I think what we wanted to do was try to have a book where, you know, many of these were compiled in one place, because so many of them we might see on a blog or somebody you know, like a list serve for, for psychologists. And we really wanted, um, you know, a therapist to be able to look up, you know, the given um, area or disorder and have a bunch of ideas, you know, kind of readily handy. Um, so I can go through some of those. Um, so let's see. So with, um, for example, um, a kid that might be afraid of being embarrassed, um, you know, similar to the idea of the clown hair, I may do a a variety of things. And again, I'd always build up, we would assess the starting point, something that might produce just a mild or minimal level of anxiety, and we would work towards higher level challenges. So these ideas are not going to be in any given order, some of them will be harder, some of them may be easier for a given child or adolescent. Um, but um, doing silly things, doing making mistakes on purpose. Um, we have our waiting room here. So I'll have kids uh, do kind of random things, roll a ball into the middle of the waiting room and not say anything, or come into the waiting room and clap their hands loudly, or walk into a public setting and purposely drop something. Um, so th- things that these kids with social anxiety are really actively avoiding because they're trying so hard to um, look a certain way, um, avoid that emotion of embarrassment. We're trying to kind of make it happen in a structured control way and, and process it um, in order for them to really build their confidence that, you know, again, this isn't the end of the world and they can, they can totally handle it. Yeah. No um, one actually dies of embarrassment. We feel yes, like we want to, but we don't. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so there's so many different things you can do with that. You can have them pay for an item at the store all with change right? To do mm-hmm. something that, you know, um, may take a little longer or they might worry somebody might be annoyed with, um, take a long time to use a public restroom. Um, so things like that, um, I do commonly for kids that are worried that 
kind of have the fear of interaction more broadly, or even like the selective mutism where they struggle to get the words out, we will practice, I will get outside of the clinic room and we will walk to um, Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts and I'll have them practice ordering. We'll go to the library and, and practice checkout books. Um, making requests is often a big one for these kids. So um, the other day I was, we were coming up with um, items that this adolescent could ask of our front desk staff. So she kept having coming forward and say, hey, can I borrow a stapler? Um, hey, would you mind if I borrow a pencil? And, um, and so that was her goal because it was really hard for her to make requests. Um, surveys are another one that I enjoy doing a lot with these kids where, uh, depending on the age, it could be anything from favorite superheroes, favorite dessert, favorite music genre. And, um, first we practice it in session where I ask them the questions, then they ask me the questions, then we go outside of the office and we might ask staff within the suite, and then we might go out into public um, and ask others those questions. It's um, like door-to-door -door sales. Door -door Thinking sales. of that makes me anxious. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And we also have to, I, you know, also check in with myself. If there's an activity I'm not suggest suggesting, I kind of check in with myself. Is this something that I don't want to do? Mm -hmm. um, You're right. Um, because a lot of times with exposure, it's recommended you know, to do the things that they, right, like with the clown hair, nobody does that normally, right? It's not something that we would just generally think to do, walk outside in public with clown hair. But by going that extra mile, it really reinforces the ability um, and that, that just, you have a wide range of options available to you and, and you can um, do these things, um, you know, again, without these terrible outcomes. Um, so that's kind of some stuff within the social realm um, with, uh, let's see, if we talk about um, separation anxiety, um, one of the things that I noticed, I started to develop a little routine doing this, that um, once I got the parent and the child to separate in my, you know, kind of in my office where I was able to play with the child in the room and the parent was able to wait in the waiting room, I started to think about, well, how can we practice exposures to the parent walking outside to their car? You know, that was kind of the next step. They're not going to drive away. They're not going to go anywhere, but we're going to practice you being up here with me and the idea that mom or dad is kind of downstairs in their car. So, um, so one silly thing I did at this time, we were in a building on the fourth floor. I had a bunch, you know, I was thinking, what, well, how could I make this fun? So the child is going to want to do this. And we had a bunch of stuffed animals. So I said, hey, why don't as dad walks outside, let's see if he can catch some of these stuffed animals and we're going to throw them down from the fourth floor. Mm -hmm. um, so, so sometimes, you know, of course with kids, the more you can find a way to make it fun. Um, with this particular child I first did this with, her, her eyes lit up. And she went from 
totally not wanting to do this task to being very open despite her anxiety, very open to it. And so we did that and we throwed a bunch of stuffed animals and dad couldn't catch half of them and she was giggling. Um, And then she allowed dad to kind of sit in his car for a bit. Um, So she was able to be successful with the exposure. And then we worked on other things in future um, sessions where dad was, you know, kind of took a five minute trip to CBS um, and various um, locations. But, uh, but I I would definitely say any way you can make, make exposures fun um, is helpful. Um, I, I, you know, if you have other questions, I mean, I can come up, I have many examples if you'd like to talk about more. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll just quickly say, I like that it has that playful element to it too, that it really is scary for them and you can get them, especially for kids. But I mean, I think it's kind of true for adults too, is that you can maybe get them to engage more if it's not just all an exercise in self-torture, you know, you're also trying to make it, you know, a little bit of a mixed you know, so it's a little fun, a little silly, mm-hmm. also scary. Yeah, yes. that's yes. so cool. Yeah, so yeah. maybe maybe a couple more examples, um, and then people sure. who want to know more can also look at your book. But mm-hmm. I love these examples so much. If you do have a couple more, I'd love to hear. Yeah. yeah, so I'm thinking of, let's see, maybe this child was, I'd say about nine or ten at the time that I was meeting with him. And he had a number of fears, but one thing that was extremely difficult for him was swimming uh, because he wouldn't put his head in the water and he was having an absolutely terrible time um, of doing that. And so, you know, so I was trying to think creatively, is there a way that I can work on this with him in the clinic setting? And so I ended up bringing in a large basin filled with water, um, you know, kind of maybe, I don't know, five or six inches, nothing too uh, too deep and it. The basin was actually translucent at the bottom. And so I helped him work on this basically by breaking it down into the tiniest steps. So it kind of shaped the behavior in a way um, and tried to make it fun. So at first I modeled it. So I put, you know, my face in the water, I blew bubbles, and then we played um, a game to see if he could guess my facial expression under the water because he could like kind of look under the basin and see what I was doing. Um, so we did that for a while. Then we did a little water play and splashing. Um, and then really I had to go step by step. I was like, okay, well, let's see, do you think you can put your chin in the water? Um, and he was able to do that. And then, you know, we record the fear rating and I give him a lot of praise. And then, you know, we try the forehead and then eventually we tried the nose, but just the nose for, you know, maybe a second. Um, and then we built up that time. And so I guess that might be an example of kind of really having to break it down into tiny, tiny steps. Um, but within the course of the 40, 45 minute session, he was able to put his full head in the water and hold his breath for, you know, as long as I, I you know, 30 seconds, wow. you know, um, as a kid might normally hold their breath and, and his father was, you know, kind of really happy with that progress. So I think sometimes it's, it's so hard because we think of the behavior as either you do it or you don't do it. And I think in the swimming lessons, the coach was was really just trying to encourage him to do the behavior as a whole. Yeah. And that, to this child, felt like flooding. It was just too much. Um, but so, I, you know, I think in trying to be kind of 
patient that helped him to break it down. Yeah. And even though you did it step by step, it really happened pretty fast. If, you know, in one 45 minute session, you were able to go from nothing to head, you know, dunking underwater, um, step by step, that's actually a pretty fast turnaround on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but I imagine my guess would be is if I had started with the like, okay, it's your, I modeled it. It's your turn. You put your head in the water. (laughs) I probably would have gotten nothing. I would have been stuck. It's too much. Um, So, yeah. So that's one of the things that, you know, it it can be tricky at times, you know, what is the right place for the child? And then, you know, and then when they do get stuck, kind of backing up pretty quickly to make an adjustment. Um, Yeah. And then let's see. So some other, um, other ones that work on flexibility a lot with kids. So, and, and this pertains both to anxiety as well as um, to frustration. Uh, I think both of those come up a lot when kids tend to be rigid uh, with certain routines. So I might engineer um, activities that require them to make abrupt transitions. So like we'll start reading a book and then I'll abruptly stop the book in the middle and I'll say, well, what, what was that like for you? How did that feel? What do you notice in your body? Let's talk about that. Um, or we might switch up the rules um, of a game we're playing right in the middle of the game. Um, so similar to anxiety with frustration, we're working on helping that child to tolerate and ride out those feelings in the moment um, without having to avoid or um, you know, erupt or, or any sort of, um, more maladaptive kind of reaction. Hmm. Yeah. So just kind of getting them used to things not being just right or perfect or, you know, orderly, um, kind of gradually. Yeah. 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 That comes up with the perfectionism a bit where, Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of kids that, um, want to draw a certain, you know, whether it's, I like to draw horses or, or, or maybe it's just drawn generally where if they make the tiniest mistake, they're erasing and re-erasing. Um, so we work on creating a drawing without erasing at all. Um, or, or erasing only one time if we usually erase five times. So we figure Mm -hmm. out what what the goal is. Um, and then we work towards that. Um, or making mistakes in homework. Some kids, um, really, they want their handwriting to be perfect, every I to be dotted, every T to be crossed, and, um, and are very, you know, it can be very time consuming to go back and to, to fix all of these tiny little mistakes that might come up. So, um, so I might have kids bring in homework, and we work on doing that homework in a way that's kind of good enough rather than perfectionistic. Um, and we set goals related to that. Yeah, I could see how you, it would be helpful to enlist at least the parents in some of this and maybe even sometimes the teachers, um, but to help break some of those kind of patterns mm-hmm. in all those areas. Well, those are great examples. Thank you so much for sharing those. I just, I think that it's really interesting to think about ways to do this work and effectively and how, um, you know, how, how interesting this work is. So I really appreciate you talking to us today and coming up with these examples um, to share. And again, for our listeners who might be interested in reading about some more ideas and more about this um, 
you know, exposure therapy for anxiety with kids. The book, again, it's exposure therapy for treating anxiety in children and adolescents, a comprehensive guide. It really is comprehensive. I mean, I think in, for all of these different types of anxiety disorders, you have, you know, a whole lot of information and ideas. So, um, and we will link to your book on our our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com, on the show notes for today's episode. Um, and Dr. Raji, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed learning about your work, and I really enjoyed your book, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Debbie. I enjoyed coming on, and thank you for all your questions. Um, and I, you know, I love talking about this stuff. I think it's fun, and I appreciate all your comments on the book. That I hope it is helpful to other therapists and practitioners, and even to parents. I think it can um, offer some guidance as well. I can vouch for that. I think it's going to be something I think about in as a parent as well. So, yes, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens. Mm-hmm.